brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. An Eye for an Eye podcast contains subject matters that many may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Any opinions expressed in the show are those of Matt and I only regarding the show at hand. And friend, thank you for coming to our TED Talk. All right, everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Rock your body. <laughs> that was such a half-assed yeah but we back everybody we back with your favorite podcast from murderly network whoop, whoop. we are eye for an eye talking about whether or not we believe the punishment fit the crime <laughs> bada bing bada boom welcome back to the show everybody we are so happy you have tuned in to join us today this is a super exciting episode because it's actually one that was um the, the fuck what was i gonna say that was uh, recommended by the um by a listener i don't know why that was so difficult for me to say are you all right over there yes all right yes, this one was recommended by joy so thank you so much joy for yes joy we, this episode. we would have loved to have you on for this one unfortunately it didn't work out i but. know we tried to get you on the show um but unfortunately our scheduling did not work out so we are going to be doing this day, but we'd still love to do an update episode with your opinions on this case because I know it happened nearby where you are from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have some personal connection to this case, but we are going to get into it. We're very thankful for all of our Patreon supporters. Just want to shout out. Woo! If you want to support our show, we appreciate every penny, literally. Everything. Um, and that's patreon.com slash iforipod. If you want to join the discussion come on our facebook page and definitely 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 go on to whatever podcast listening app you're on whether that's itunes stitcher whatever else may be and give us those five star reviews those are very very nice to read and it's very helpful to the show so we appreciate you now matt let's get into this case let's we do it about today we're talking about ronnie lee gardner lisa we sure are the first was when the curtain was opened Mr. Gardner's head was restrained. Um, There was a strap across his forehead, so he couldn't move his head. But I could see him moving his eyes, and it looked almost like he could see us through the window, even though he couldn't. What uh, caught my attention was that it was so sudden, so quick. uh, Boom, boom, just like that. It was over pretty quickly. It was cleaner than I expected, and it was fast. Um, but, But he moved. He moved a little bit, and to some degree that bothers me. Um, To some degree that mirrors the last few weeks of his life because he was fighting to stay alive the last few weeks of his life legally, and that seemed to carry on the last uh, 60 to 120 seconds. When he was shot, some of us, I think, weren't sure if he had passed away because we could see movement. He had his fist clenched and we can see his elbow move up and down and uh, his thumb and forefingers moving 
uh, rubbing against each other. Before we went in to the uh, execution room, they, they warned us that if the first round of shots doesn't fire, we'll have to fire again. And I don't know about the others, but I think for a brief second we were starting to wonder if that was going to happen because it kept moving. And those were the, that's what stood out most to me. It was um, uh, almost clinical and um, very sanitary. The, the other observation would be um, after a, it seemed like a couple of minutes, but it was much faster than that. We could see there was some change in the coloration of, it was a navy blue, dark blue jumpsuit he was wearing. It was like blood may have been pooling around his waist, but you could tell that something was changing around his waist. and. background for you guys on Ronnie Lee. Ronnie Lee was born in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1961, the youngest of seven children in a very busy household. Seven children. Yeah, my dad was the middle child of nine, so Woo! yeah, that to me is like, whoa! Wow. I was the oldest of two, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm the youngest of two. Although that was cool. Big it would be interesting, that's for sure. But I mean, I don't think Never I could. Had a dull day. I couldn't keep track of everyone's lives. Like my brother's my best friend. I know where he's at. I know what he's doing. Like I, I'm, I'm on point with him. Like if I had like four other siblings that I was talking to besides him, I would lose track of their shit. I would just be like, oh yeah, they're over in uh, Arkansas. Yeah, I forget honestly. But yeah. no, but truly. A busy household. Ronnie's father, Dan Gardner, was unfortunately a heavy drinker, an alcoholic, who left the household to start another family when Ronnie was only a toddler. Dan and Gardner's mother, Ruth, divorced when Ronnie was only 18 months old. And it was reported that six months after the divorce, Ronnie was found malnourished and wandering the streets alone in a diaper. So only so two years old. Oh. 24. <laughs> two. Yeesh. <laughs> I no. don't know, like, months. Oh, yeah, Not man. months. Like, I know how many months is in a year. I just, I, like, when people talk, like, baby ages, like, I'm like, why do I have to do 36 that? months, just yeah. Just two fucking years old. Yeah, I know. Two two months, two years Damn, old. Damn, two years yeah. old wandering the streets in a diaper. Yeah. That's sad. serious stuff. Yeah. Uh, failure to care petition was filed with Child Protective Services workers, and they took Ronnie into custody, uh, though later he was actually returned to his mother. Uh, and his relationship with his father was tumultuous, obviously, from the get-go. Dan didn't believe he was actually Ronnie's biological father and regularly told him so. Just so traumatizing. Awful. I um, actually was listening to a case today on a different podcast um, regarding uh, a case that we're going to cover. And I forget his name off the top of my head. But basically, oh, Son of Sam. Um, and oh, yeah. He was adopted, and I... We'll get into it, obviously, when we cover the case, but he wasn't told that he was adopted, and then when he was, he was told that his mother died in childbirth, which was not true. Mm. She um, she gave him up for adoption because the father did not want any part of it, and she I don't think she thought she could do it alone. But, like, when he found that out, it fucked him up. Like, he cites that as why he became a serial killer. And so, like, it can really mess you up. And, like, I know from being adopted at 10 months old, like, the first couple months of your life is so important. And to find out that that's all a lie or that's not true, it can really be really damaging. Mm. I mean, I did, that's not what happened to me, but, like, I just know that that's, like, an important part of life. 
So as we discussed, his relationship with his father was pretty tumultuous. His father was always um, denying that he was the biological father, and he always told Ronnie this. Of course, this, as we spoke about, can really affect your psyche, can really affect the way your self-image, the way you feel about yourself. Um, and according to Gardner, he was raised by his older sister and was sexually abused by his siblings. Well, how much of a common denominator are these two things? A poor upbringing with your parents being involved, either not being involved there, or just having like a troubled childhood yeah. in general, and sexual abuse into later either killers or rapists or anybody who's yeah, violent absolutely. crime offenders. You know, so many of these violent offenders have that violence in their past. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's such a common denominator. Well, it's kind of the same thing with bullying. It's like when you're bullied, you become the bully. It's Very true. It's the same kind of mentality. It's like, okay, they hurt me so I can hurt them. Or like it becomes normative. It becomes like what you know. Very true. So it was said that sometimes to seek refuge, Ronnie and his sister would run away to, quote, hobo camp. Hobo camp. Now, when looking back at his chaotic and troubling upbringing, it's no surprise that by age 10, Ronnie was addicted to drugs and drink to excess. At age 10. 10. 10. That's fourth grade. Yeah. 10. Addicted to drugs and drink. It's no surprise, though, honestly. I mean, think about it. Like... Yeah, I mean, he was set up to fail. I mean, with that kind of... Yeah, that, that all going on in your life. dad who's denying your existence, um, being sexually abused by family members or family friends. I mean, it's unfortunate that this is what kind of became of him. And it's like, it feels like he was set up to fail. Yeah. So, of course, because of the drugs and alcohol, it was, again, no surprise that Ronnie felt was was hanging with the wrong crowds. I mean, what what crowd are you hanging out with when they're letting a ten year old ten year old drink and do drugs? So his first run with the law came when he he and his brother Randy were arrested and taken to a juvenile detention center for stealing a cowboy boot. No idea why they wanted the boot. Probably just mischievous, you know. Kids do yeah, kids do stupid shit. I mean, I don't know any ten year olds who are drinking and doing drugs. However, I do know you know little boys and little girls who would steal things when they were little just to, like, kind of be, like, silly and, like, you know, mischievous. Right. Gardner would end up recalling that he felt abandoned when his father came to the detention center because what happened was he came and only picked up his brother. Oh, that's And so left Ronnie up. behind. What? How, how sad is that? Like, that's can you horrible. imagine how horrible that would feel? Like, hey, I'm finally getting out of here and you're young, you know, you don't know any better and it's like, and you see a familiar face, your family member, and he comes and gets your brother and leaves and you And leaves you. It's, like, heartbreaking. It's really sad. Mm. And I think it's important to know about him to kind of not understand or empathize, but to, to kind of gauge whether or not you believe the punishment fits a crime or whether he was doomed from the start. Yeah. So Gardner's mother married Bill Lucas, who had a record that was horrible himself. He had been incarcerated in Wyoming in 1968. And Bill and Ruth ended up having two more children, bringing the total of kids in the home to nine, which is kind of like your dad. Yep. Ronnie ended up looking up to Bill because that was the father figure in his life. He, I mean, that's all he had. I mean, his dad was denying his existence, so he was like the next best thing is Bill. And unfortunately, Bill was not a good... Not the best role model. model. Yeah, honestly. Who are you chilling with? Right. And he would use his stepsons to act as lookouts when he burgled homes. 
So already he was like utilizing the fact that these young impressionable teens looked up to him and would use them to be lookouts when he was committing crimes. So by his early teens, he had been held in a detention center and a series of institutions, including involuntary commitment at Utah State Hospital in Provo. So it's no surprise that any of this happened. This is all not shocking because it's just he was just set up to fail by everyone that he trusted. Yeah, it was a very early depiction of what's going on in oh, a young absolutely. man, young troubled young man's life. Yeah, and later on he would describe that because he was smaller, he felt the need to fight people to protect himself and earn respect from others. Which is a very common denominator oh, yeah, as well. So while he was held at the Utah State Industrial School, which was a juvenile reform school in Ogden, <laughs> Gardner was visited by Jack Statt. And this is where things get a little odd. And this is a guy who was living with his brother Randy. Yes. His older brother Randy. So according to Gardner, Matt Statt met Randy at a bus stop and paid him $25 for oral sex. Um, <laughs> confused. Yeah, but. this this old man met uh, Ronnie's brother, Randy, and just offered him money for oral sex, and he took it. He took up on the offer. 25 bucks to give him head? In 1975. I don't know if that's a lot of money in 1975. Not really. Not for some random dude to start giving you neck. That's <laughs> just... <laughs> Not really. So, when Ronnie was released from the school... 25 million, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Um, when he was released from the school that he was at in 1975, Ronnie followed his brother and ended up staying with Zach. They... Still, let's stop become a foster parent to Gardner and his brother, which it just seems like this was a much older man dealing with younger kids who were impressionable and out of nowhere was able to become a foster parent. I don't think necessarily... I just feel like some checks and balances were lacking. ...with the fact that he was performing sexual acts with... Well, I don't know if they knew or about that part. ...or in front of them or around them. Or to them. That's what I mean, with or around or in front, anywhere near them... <laughs> I mean, that's just... Yeah, that's, so it, you know. that, yeah, so back on track, this this was something that they didn't look at, didn't think about. I don't think they knew that he was performing sexual acts on the boys. So Ronnie would say that Stat performed sex acts on them and explained, quote, I thought life like that was normal, end quote, which is saying a whole lot about the way this, this guy grew up. I mean, he just really was set up to fail, and he was living with an abuser is basically what was going on. Now, he stated during a psychological evaluation later on that he did work as a prostitute while living with Stat, mm-hmm. who psychologists say fit the typical pedophile profile. Mm-hmm. So, back to what Matt and I were saying, it's like, we don't care how you're dressing, but if you're hurting yourself or other people, which he absolutely was, then we have a problem. How in the hell did he slip through the foster care system, Matt? I don't understand. I wonder about that as well. I don't, I, I don't know. They, I mean, I know the system's pretty broken as it is, but I can't imagine. I, I hate to use the term broken, but it's definitely severely flawed because, I mean, it does help a lot of people, but at the same time. Yeah, but I feel like a lot more people are fucked by it. Yeah. We can also debate that. But um, in, in our new Patreon slam spinoff thing. So, yeah, so basically all psychologists say that this man fit the typical pedophile predator profile. Now, although all signs point to this new living situation to be full of sexual abuse, 
Ronnie speaks fondly of his time in the foster care with Stat, and that it was the most stable period of his life, which really speaks to the way his life was going. And he said, quote, Jack was a good man, and he tried to help us out, end quote. So it's kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome type of feeling, you know what I mean? Or, like, you know, honestly, even though he was being actively, actively abused, it could have been arguably better than what he was going through. I mean, trading in bad abuse for even less abuse... I mean, I can understand why that would be seen as a fond memory because it's like you're, you're escaping one horrible scenario and you don't really realize you're in another horrible scenario. It's like out of the flames into the fire. You yeah. Know, or out of the pot into the fire. Yeah, so I can understand why maybe he believed one was better than the other when they're both terrible. You know, it's just he was set up really horribly in life. So Ronnie was in and out of the industrial school and during his first period in the school, he met Deborah Bischoff in the apartment complex where his mother did live. Now, Bischoff would later describe him as, quote, very caring. He never put me in rough situations he was in throughout his life. He sheltered me from all that stuff, end quote. Hmm. So it sounds like they had a good relationship. It sounds like he was very loving to her, and he made sure, you know, all of the, um, all of the wild situations that he was put in, he made sure she was out of it. He didn't want her involved. And I think that's, uh, that speaks to something, I guess. I think it says that at least you're, I don't want to say capable of showing compassion yeah. and love, but at the same time, I mean, it shows that there were human emotions. You're not emotions. just a total monster. Yeah, there were human emotions there, and that these people that we talk about sometimes don't just always have to be considered, like you just said, monsters. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely. So, um, they basically, of course, started dating, and they ended up giving birth to a daughter in May of 1977 and a son in February of 1980. Mm. So they had a son and a daughter, and the following month after his son was born, unfortunately, Ronnie went back to prison for a robbery charge. Now, Gardner successfully escaped prison's maximum security unit. 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 <laughs> That's a better word. In unit. Unit. On April 19, 1981, and was shot in the neck while attempting to kill a man who he believed re- raped Bischoff. Mm. So this was just a situation altogether. Now, in February 1983, he was identified as a ringleader in a disturbance in which inmates barricaded a cell block and started fires. So he's just getting in trouble one thing after another. And on August 6, 1984, Gardner escaped again from custody at University of Utah Hospital after faking an illness by vomiting. Jesus. I give him credit for ingenuity, I'll say that. (laughs) He attacked transportation officer Don Leavitt and forced him to unlock his shackles by telling him, quote, I guess you know, if that doctor comes back, I'll have to kill you both, end quote. Now, in the course of this escape, Gardner trucked... Gardner struck Levitt so hard that he needed wires to reconstruct his face. Or leave it. Did we say it was leave it or love it? Love it. Love it. So hard that he needed wires to reconstruct his face. He forced forced a medical student named Mike Lynch to take him from the premises on a motorcycle while pointing a gun to his back. On August 11th, a letter carrier found Levitt's... Why do I forget what she told me to pronounce it? Levitt. Um, okay, on August 11th, a letter carrier found Levitt's firearm in a mailbox with a note from Ronnie that said, quote, here's the gun and wallet taken from the guard at the hospital. I don't want to hurt no one else. I just want to be free. End quote. Wow. So, Matt, this is where things... Take a trip. 
take a try. I mean, he's already committing robberies. He's already doing drugs. He's already, you know, wrapped up in this, you know. I mean, we're ahead of the game as far as, like, being a criminal here. I think at this point there's some element of, there's no doubt that, unfortunately, Ronnie had a lot of issues, struggled with not only maintaining some semblance of order, but also with probably, you know, figuring himself out. Like, yeah. it seemed like he was... He wanted to have a family, he wanted to be a criminal, and then he I wanted think, to... I honestly think it's almost all he knew. Yeah. I mean, his stepdad was basically like, hey, this is life, you have to watch out while I commit robberies. Yeah. So it's like, it, it sounds like this is just like all he knew. He only knew a life of crime. So that, yep. it's like almost, I mean, I don't empathize because I know he did some bad things, but like are horrible things, but it's just one of those things where you have to think, like, is this a product of his environment? So, Matt, let's dive into it. What did he do? Oh, well, we're diving deep. On October 9th, 1984, Gardner robbed the Cheers Tavern in Salt Lake City. High as hell, driving that train, high on cocaine. Casey Jones, I'm sorry, Ronnie Lee Gardner, committed a robbery and ended up shooting bartender Melvin John Otterstrom in the face, killing him instantly. During the robbery, Ronnie Gardner made out with less than a hundred dollars. All like, of that. Blew a guy away for a hundred bucks. You didn't even get a hundred bucks. You didn't even check the register first. His Why would you shoot the guy? His family's very clearly bad at bartering. Oral sex for twenty-five bucks, a robbery. Yeah. Killing someone. Killing for some guy bucks. for a hundred. Like, dude, what is there wrong? There's like with you? no. Yeah, no. It's just horrible. Oh my god. It's unbelievable. Well, and then actually, this is an interesting little tidbit in a pretty common thread we've seen amongst killers, criminals in general, but killers in particular. Uh, Ronnie either tried to stick around and see how things worked or actually inserted himself into the investigation by attending Melvin's funeral and pretending to be a childhood friend. Which is just another level of what the fuck. Creepy, yeah, like why? Why would you, like not only did he attend this funeral like be like a silent bystander, but he like actively spoke to the family and said, you know, hey, I'm a childhood friend, like, I'm so sorry for your loss. That's, that's like a level. Dude, they blew him away. That's mm-hmm. so fucked up. It's so creepy. I'm sorry. I don't, shouldn't swear, but still it's messed up. Um, but following a tip shortly after, like three weeks later, police apprehended Gardner on, at his cousin's house um, because he was apparently they alerted the police that somebody had known that he had done this and that he I don't know when did they find out that he attended the funeral was that the same time or I'm sure it was during the investigation yeah Gardner said that the shooting occurred because Otterstrom put up a fight but investigators didn't find any evidence to support that claim there was no evidence that he had fought back at all he was held in custody in lieu of a 1.5 million dollar bail Oof. yeah they ain't cheap um, so actually he didn't drive himself there. He had a getaway drive. Yeah. Darcy Perry McCoy, who testified against him as his getaway driver. Um, during trial proceedings for the Otterstrom murder on April second, nineteen eighty five, Ronnie attempted to escape from custody with a revolver smuggled into the Metropolitan Hall of Fame of Justice. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Damn>. <sighs> 
the Metropolitan Hall of, Hall of Fame. Hall of Justice League fame. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mondays. Right. During trial proceedings for the Otterstraw murder on April 2nd, 1985, Ronnie actually attempted to escape again from custody with a revolver he smuggled into the Metropolitan Hall of Justice in Salt Lake City. Which is insane, because, like, don't they have metal detectors? Right. How did I he get a revolver through the door? It? I mean, even if they didn't 1985, have though. They didn't pat my man's down? Somebody well, he didn't. Like, he didn't. I don't think he smuggled it in. Oh. <laughs> let's, oh. let's talk about it. All right, let's dive in. Jim Klein of the Salt Lake City Fire Department believed that the gun was passed to Gardner as he was being escorted into the courthouse from underground parking lot. Wait, can we talk about, isn't a revolver, what's a revolver? Is that the, like, tiny, like, normal, like, handgun, or is that, like... A revolver is a six-shooter that... Is it small? No, not necessarily. A revolver's just a different type of gun. It doesn't have, like, a clip, like a magazine. You have to oh. load bullets into it, and it shoots the full bullet in oh. the shell case. So, like, 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 little boys, like, fake guns, like the ones where you, like, put it in, like, the swirly thing, that's what it's like? Yes, except there's the no... The swirly thing? There's no fakeness <laughs> to it. The swirly thing is the revolver, actually. Oh, because it revolves. Exactly. Wow. See how much fire, I know about guns? When you fire a bullet, it revolves and pulls the next bullet up into the chamber. Wow. Okay. Learn something new today, everybody. Mm-hmm. That's why a revolver is called a, a revolver. revolver. Yes. So I recently found out something like this. I was in Thailand recently, for those of you that I have not told this to. I've pretty much told everybody. But I was at my good friend's wedding, and... Congratulations, by the way. Yes, congratulations, Saran and Vani. You had the most amazing wedding I've ever been to in my whole freaking life. (laughs) Um, But anyways, it was really cool because we were in a Sikh temple, and there are only a few chairs around the outside of the main room, the main, I should say, ceremony room. or I don't temple area like type of thing i wouldn't even call it the temple area because the whole building was the temple but it was a really it was just a yeah it was the like the room. area specifically for prayer prayer exactly like prayer room prayer room if you will like the chapel what you would call the church i guess yeah know? um but it was a beautifully decorated room but there are only a few chairs around the outside and i'm like what are those? Where do we sit? You know, like, is everybody's just sitting down on the floor? And my buddy and I turned to our friend Manpreet, who is also Sikh, and we said, Preet, how are we, we just supposed to sit on the ground? And he was like, yeah, dude, sit Indian style. And Lutch, my buddy and I, we turned to each other and had this moment of, oh my God, that's where it comes from. That's where the, where the term Indian style comes from. Oh my god. I know, right? I was so floored by that. You are It was like boom. Oh my gosh. The mind blown scenario. Okay. So, <laughs> long story. I'm sorry, but I thought that was so interesting. I had one of those moments too. Um So this is very interesting though. After back to Ronnie Lee Gardner. After Ronnie was handed the gun as he entered the basement lobby of the hall. I'm sorry, this was right before he was handed the gun. He entered the lobby of the basement of the hall. He was handed the gun by a female accomplice. He fumbled with the weapon because it wasn't very familiar to him, something he wasn't used to. And his guards retreated to the parking lot. He was immediately then shot in the chest by guard Luther Hensley. And Ronnie got 
one shot off and actually wounded unarmed bailiff George Nick Kirk in the abdomen. And after running to the courtroom archives, he confronted his attorneys, Robert Macri and Michael Burdell. And according to Robert Macri, after Gardner pointed the gun at him, he changed aim to Burdell, who had been doing pro bono work for his church. Burdell yelled, oh my God, when Gardner shot him in the eye. Wow. Gardner then made his way out of the building, where he was surrounded by dozens of police officers. Gardner threw the gun away, dropped, and apparently unaware that he had thrown the gun away, yelled, Don't shoot. I don't have a gun. They saw you do that, though. They saw you throw the gun yeah, away. Right, like, okay. okay. Thanks for surrendering the gun. Thanks but... for throwing the gun and then saying I don't have a gun. Yeah. You had a gun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're still worried. <laughs> yeah, you had a gun. He was taken to the University of Utah Health Services Center where he was listed in serious condition but recovered. This is a bullet wound to, yeah. to the chest, yeah. Burdell died, unfortunately, his attorney, about 45 minutes later while in surgery at Holy Cross Hospital. I live off of Holy Cross Drive. Maybe I shouldn't say that to everybody, but I thought it was interesting to tell you, so I'll cut that. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, but, um, extra tip. Isn't that horrible? Awful, awful. And I mean, just like, by happenstance being in the room, he runs in and confronts them with a gun. You know, like, they're there to help him. It just shows you how quickly and how randomly things can go bananas. Totally haywire. So, prosecutor. Oh, so, did you say Kirk survived surgery yet? No. Okay. You want to dive in? Sure. So, Kirk, the other attorney, survived, right? Was that the other attorney? Or was that the... Yes. No, Kirk, he was Kirk was the unarmed other bailiff. No. Yeah, George Nick Kirk. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right, he was. Yes. So, the unarmed bailiff, uh, Kirk, survived surgery and was listed in critical condition at LDS Hospital. During an extensive... An extensive... And I, I'm just... I can't speak words. So, during an extensive search of the courthouse... A bag of men's clothing was found in the basement sink under a woman's restroom sink. Wait. Yeah. Found in the basement under a woman's restroom sink. Prosecutor Bob Stott believed Gardner's gun had been taped to a water fountain on the first floor. How did nobody see any of this happen? I don't get it. Darcy Perry McCoy was found unarmed and arrested and was arrested later about a mile away. Her sister, Karma Jolly Hainsworth, was sentenced to eight years in prison for delivering the clothes and messages in preparation for the escape attempt. But the identity of the person who provided Gardner with the firearm was not known at the time. State Corrections Director William Vickery cleared the actions of the prison guards who escorted Gardner, but Salt Lake County Sheriff N.D. Pete Hayward said that the guard who shot Gardner should have kept shooting until Gardner was dead. Wow. Which I guess, I mean, unfortunately, that is one of those situations where I kind of agree. It's yeah, like, what else do you do? Yeah, that's this is the kind of situation where you shoot to kill, not when someone's running away from you unarmed. Yeah. So Sheriff Hayward said that the escape attempt, Matt, happened to be well-planned. 
Of course. And I mean, a, yeah, they had like seven steps to this. It seemed like there was some pretty ornate planning going on here. Right? Like they had somebody already set up to come in the same entrance, have the gun ready. Smuggle this gun in, yeah. tape it underneath. You had to come in with some tape. Yeah. Some duct tape, some notes. You had clothes all picked out. Like this was a definitely a setup situation. So Otterstrom... A mountain climber and veteran of the 19th Special Forces Group of the Utah National Guard was survived by his wife, Kathy, and his five-year-old son, Jason. Burdell, a Vietnam veteran, former engineer, and member of the Sumam Church, was survived by his girlfriend, Donna New, who would go on to advocate, advocate against Gardner's execution, which is an interesting note. Very interesting so note. We I a- wanted to check on that, too. I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're against the death penalty, you're yeah. Against if death you're penalty. against death penalty, it doesn't matter who it it's is. It's kind of like pro-life or pro-choice. I always wonder though, when people that have a personal connection, I want to ask them again. Like, when you have a personal connection, does it seem different to you because you are against the death penalty? Mm-hmm. But that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, in this case, but I wanted to take a quick uh, little baby moment of silence um, for the two, well, the three, I guess, because mm. the other guy was shot in the bar, which started all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, moments of silence for their their loss. All right, so let's get into the sentencing and incarceration. You tell me all about it, Matt. Okay, let's do it. So, Gardner was diagnosed after several tests with antisocial personality disorder. For those of you unfamiliar, hey. Hey, what that is, antisocial personality disorder is a personality disorder characterized by a long-term pattern of disregard for or in violation of the rights of others. A low moral sense of conscience is often apparent, as well as a history of crime, legal problems, or impulsive and aggressive behavior being common. Sounds like if you looked that up in a dictionary or a thesaurus or whatever. That's me. <laughs> I was going to say Ronnie's name would be there. Oh, yeah, Ronnie. However, also Matt. It's Matt. Yeah, Ronnie. This is what I deal with daily every Ronnie day. for sure. <laughs> um, no, but honestly, so antisocial personality disorder. I feel like disorder, they hit that on the head. I would totally agree. It's a very um, specific diagnosis. Like, obviously, if there's not many people that fit into that mold because, yeah, you know, the crime element in particular, that's very specific. But also... Your blatant disregard for the rights of others, for people around you, and that includes anyone, like yeah. family, friends, and well, quote unquote, family and friends, anybody who would be, you know, in your way, is just irrelevant to you, and things of that nature. You know, with people like that, it's almost like, how do you rationalize with them? It's so it's so hard to realize that there are people that like suffer with these mental illnesses. Yeah, um, right. because it's so hard to comprehend that you don't care about anybody else. You know, exactly. what I mean? it's literally have the inability to give a shit yeah like think about it like some people we say you know everybody at some point like, i don't even give a shit but there are people out there who like literally are like yo yeah. if i run you over with my car i'm gonna keep driving yeah, like I don't. that's the end of that you know what's interesting um, that has nothing to do with this but um i was listening to a podcast talking a lot about sociopathy and um basically it said that hold on basically it said Okay, so I was watching, sorry, I hit the thing on my microphone. So I was listening to a podcast talking about sociopathy, and basically the podcast was talking to some person who self-diagnosed as a sociopath. And did you know it's like normal? Self-diagnosed being the, the key, key word. word. Yeah. But basically, um, it, it said that a lot of CEOs, 
are sociopaths. Yeah, I have heard or that. Like, actually. Or like, or have the traits. Have those traits? Yeah, I've read that. And then, because like, you're able if to you like look at a lot of successful people, shit. yeah, a lot of successful people, they say, fit into that mold. Because it's you have to make a lot of hard decisions, so it's not always a bad thing. Like, we're not saying people with antisocial personality disorder are going to go out and commit murders. We're just saying in this case, that you almost have to, to be able to give people up, give people away without having any fear of that. Because that's, I think, like what a sociopath is most ruthless for. If it's somebody you care about or somebody, like, you know, there are socio, like sociopaths that yeah. have killed people, but there are sociopaths that are Spire just, people. you know, nor, <laughs> no, just normal human beings oh, yeah. that are functioning, walking around every day out of here, course. but aren't, you know, like, not Murdering. psychopaths, like yeah. where they like are detached from their mind and have no intention of like coming back to it. Yeah. But there are people who, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, like CEOs, a lot of people that are in power, po- like politicians, I think, you know, you kind of have to blatantly ignore a lot of other people's concerns in some ways and yeah, kind of focus on what's best for you. And that's it. And that's it. It's sometimes hard to do that when you care about other people's feelings. It is. That's what I mean. A lot of people can't relate to that and almost are like, well, how's that possible? But it's like, it's hard for us to even explain. Yeah. You know, because like I have some empathy towards everybody. I feel like Mm -hmm. I have anger and I can, you know, like a lot of those people, you won't even catch them being emotional about Mm -hmm. things. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Um, but anyway, so 1985, June 1985, Gardner pleaded guilty to the murder of Otterstrom and received a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. At one point, he threatened to disrupt subsequent court hearings because he was upset over having to wear a required leg brace that would lock if he attempted to escape again. Well, duh. At this point, yeah, bro, what <laughs> did you expect? I'm surprised you're not in a Hannibal Lecter cage. Yeah, how do they not have you in a cage with a, with a face mask yeah. by now? Like, come right? on, bro. Like, you are clearly an escape risk. I always You've think You've only of, tried to escape of every prison you've ever been to. For anybody that's a huge Harry Potter nerd like me, but, like, if you've seen the movies... I always think about those cages, or the cage, I should say, in the one trial in the sixth movie where the guy literally is in a cage and there are a bunch of freaking <laughs> spikes like pointing inward yeah. at him in the cage. And like literally he's got like no room to move. He's in this big iron cage and there's like spikes pointing out at him. And I'm like, that would be so creepy and uncomfortable I could not imagine but that would be a cool idea to keep like really fucked up yeah like the Chokey and Matilda yes my Uh, dad used to tell me that I was gonna go into the Chokey if I was bad that's awful (laughs) that's terrible Steve come on that is just terrible that explains so much hey (laughs) Uh, okay so anyways back to this so he was advised by guards that would be to his benefit to behave in front of prospective jurors which makes sense yeah District Judge J.E. Banks, J.E., instructed the jury on October 22, 1985, that they had the option of a verdict for lesser offenses of manslaughter if they found Gardner to be under mental or emotional duress when he shot Burdell. Which, again, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the distinction there, 
Manslaughter is a common legal term for homicide considered by law to be less culpable than murder. The difference is that manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, the offender had no prior intent to kill and acted in the moment under circumstances that could cause a reasonable person to become emotionally or mentally disturbed. So in that moment, the most common type of, like, like honestly, I'd say murder is planned is what the distinction is. Mm. If you don't know, you know, to break it down very simply, a murder is planned. It's designed, it's intent. Isn't third degree murder, though, the, like the one that's like spur of the moment murder as well? Yes, but it in some ways it's has, like, like yeah, you had the element of yeah. murder involved. Like yeah, yeah. you had... You intended. You went there with bad intentions. Knowing that that was going to be the outcome. Or, like, say, for example. Because manslaughter is like, like, when I think of manslaughter, like I third think of degree murder. Like, you didn't right. mean to kill anybody. Exactly. It but, but like, third result. degree murder could be, like, a drunk driver. Oh. You could charge somebody with third degree murder for that. Because they drank. Because you regularly. drank. You got behind the wheel. You knew you, you knew were drinking. Okay. You knew you were a danger. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's got where it, they could it, upgrade it. that. Got it. That's where the difference is. And they might even upgrade that to second degree murder and say, like, hey, you know, you intended to be drinking right. and driving and, put, and putting yourself in danger. I don't know. Um, you know, there are other circumstances that come into play. But so the most common type of voluntary manslaughter occurs when a defendant is provoked to, I'm sorry, provoked to commit a homicide. Uh, like a heat of a passion killing, like heat of the moment. Um, so in most cases, that provocation would have to be induced by some sort of rage or anger. Uh, although in some cases, they will accept like just pure terror and fright or desperation as a reason for killing or attacking or hurting someone. So do you think in this case, what they were saying that could have happened if the jurors decide this was that he shot back at the guards who were shooting at him because he was trying to escape. Like, so he was just trying to defend himself because they yes, were shooting at him? I think so, and I also think And, like, he was because, scared that they were going to kill him? Or he was scared to go to jail or whatever? I don't was, think he ever intended to kill anybody. I think he, he was... He just wanted to escape. Escaping, right. Yeah, because exactly. I guess he didn't He didn't kill the first guards that he beat up. No. He just beat them and left. And then left, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really... It's hard for me to say I would have charged him with murder because yeah. they... They planned to give him a loaded gun. He planned to get a loaded gun. He had to know something was going to happen. Yeah, he was prepared. Guards weren't just going to be like, oh, you have a gun and we have a gun, so <laughs> I guess this is a stalemate. You can go. Like, You have a gun, we have a gun. Bye. Yeah, see you later. Good luck. <laughs> Sorry we couldn't get you to the courthouse fast enough. Uh, okay, so I would have charged him with murder. Well, um, let's see what they said. Right. In most cases, though... Uh, like we say, it's something that has to be caused in the heat of the moment, like right purely. then and there. Yeah. yeah, either you're frightened for your life, your passion was incited by, like you know, say another example would be like you walk in and your significant other's banging somebody else, and you blow both of them away right there. That's yeah, heat of passion. A lot of people plead like the heat of the moment. I had no idea. I don't even remember what happened. Out, yeah. I blacked out and I pulled out the gun I had next to me in the drawer he and I shot coming. both of them. He had it coming. It's like he had it coming. Um, but anyway, so the jurors deliberated less than three hours and found Gardner guilty of capital murder, which ultimately means he was sentenced to death. And he so this I give him you know credit for because they do allow this in Utah. He selected execution by firing squad instead of lethal injection. 
which some people say is an interesting thing about the criminal justice system, that they give the person who's sentenced to die the right to choose how. Yeah. And there are normally several different options. There used to be hanging. The firing squad is... No, it's no longer concerned. Well, I know that that's not one, but it used to be, right? Did they used to get to choose that? Was that a bird choice? No, Chopped not... my head. I'm talking it. about in, in the American justice oh. system. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> we don't just chop heads off, no. That was like 18th century France. <laughs> um, badass, though. But no, too much of a mess. No, typically the options would be... For fire, those states that allow it. For those states that allow it. The firing squad, hanging, lethal injection, the okay. gas chamber, and electrocution. Damn. What would you choose? It's hard to say. They say lethal injection is now totally painless. I think the gas chamber would be the most painful. What? Really? Yeah. Electrocution you don't think would be painful? I think it would, but I think it would be quick. They run so much voltage through you, it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. Bye. Later. Yeah. I mean, it's like, imagine getting shocked but by But I guess you're right, the gas, because you're choking to death effectively. You literally are inhaling poison for, like, a couple minutes. Yeah, it takes a then, long time to, yeah. for that to happen. Oof. Yeah, that would be awful. The Oof. firing squad would be quick, but... but definitely heart-wrenching. Yeah. I don't know. It's awful to think about, though, and I it's won't horrible. ever try and be in that position. I have to no, make no, that no, decision. No, 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 never. I was just curious. Uh, no, yeah, definitely an interesting question. What would you choose? Um, I'd say that lethal injection because I would hope it would be like a painless, like, because isn't Transition. it, wouldn't it be some, isn't, is it, I mean, this is going to sound morbid, but is it like the same kind of situation, how they put animals down where they like give you like sleepy, like twilight medicine and then the drug that stops your heart? I believe so. Because yeah. that seems painless. Like that seems like you're just inoculant. high as a kite and then you get. Well, yeah, they give you an inoculant, and then it kind of takes you out of Well, yourself. and they also do that, I think, for lethal injections as well, because there's people that watch it, and it's violent if they don't, because they your body shakes. Oh, it happens. I mean, where people don't react well to the drug cocktail, and, you know, blah, 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 stuff happens. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, good question, though. Legislators in Utah had eliminated the firing squad as the method of execution in 2004. But convicts who were sentenced before that date, such as Gardner, could still select that option. Which is very interesting. Very interesting. So, since 1976, only two other people have been executed by firing squad in the United States, both of whom were in Utah. Gary Gilmore and John Albert Taylor. Who we will be covering eventually on this. Gardner's attorney said that his client did not want to attract attention and simply preferred to die this way. I'd prefer to die of old age, Your Honor, but if that ain't possible, I'll take the firing squad. Ronnie Lee Gardner, 1985. So, Gardner's incarceration at Utah's then youngest inmate on death row uh, was not even uneventful. There was a lot that happened before he even made it to the firing squad. What a surprise. What a shock. A hearing was held on February 19, 1987, in which Ronnie and other inmates claimed unconstitutional confinement in unsanitary conditions with poor food. What? Bitch, you're in prison. What? Girl. Girl, you get to eat rocks. I don't want to hear you. Right? You're lucky you get fucking food. No, I mean, not even that. Like, I don't know what the conditions were like, but it's almost like, what? You're in prison. It shouldn't be good. Thank you. 
On October 28, 1987, that same year, Gardner broke a glass partition in a prison visiting area and had sex with a woman who was meeting him while other inmates cheered and barricaded the doors. <laughs> wow. He wasn't fucking around with the last times he had on it. He said, no. you know what? You're putting me to death. I'm going to make this the best motherfucking time I've ever he, had. He did it right. I'll give him that. I wouldn't say right, but he did it. Um, <laughs> according to state... <laughs> seriously. <laughs> according to state prison spokesperson Juan Benavidez, though Gardner had knocked out the lights, an officer who was in the control room could still see what was going on, though he claimed breaking the lights was an accident. In 1993... Utah State Representative Dan Tuttle introduced what he called the Ronnie Lee Gardner Bill, in which he proposed that law enforcement officers be permitted to shoot inmates attempting to escape, whether they are, quote-unquote, armed or not. I don't necessarily agree with you, Mr. Tuttle. We'll have to talk about that in Eye for an Eye. Ah-da-ah. On September 25th, 1994, Gardner somehow got drunk in prison consuming alcohol, which he fermented in his own prison cell sink. Right on. <laughs> and stabbed inmate Richard Fats Thomas with a shiv fastened from a pair of sunglasses. Credit for ingenuity, Ronnie. <laughs> this is just like, literally like you could make a movie on this guy. This doesn't even sound real. Honestly, this guy is a fucking walking disaster. <laughs> it's just like... An awful human being. Right? Like he just wasn't like... He wasn't ending. Like, he was just going on and on and on. He didn't care where he was, just causing a ruckus. Well, Richard Thomas suffered nine puncture wounds to his face, mouth, arm, and chest that were life-threatening, but he eventually made a full recovery. And though he survived the stabbing, Gardner was charged with another capital crime under a 1974 Utah law reserved for prison attacks by first-degree felony inmates. So there was a law specifically for people like him who were in jail and committed crimes in jail and were still trying to get fucked. Right. So the charge against Gardner was thrown out by the Utah Supreme Court because the victim did not die, however. Okay. That's still some shit. They should still charge him with something. There has to be, like, attempted fucking... Yeah, but what can they really charge him with? (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) I don't know. Isn't attempted murder something? Yeah, but he's already sitting on death row. Just kill him sooner. Put up his put his end date closer. Yeah. I don't think they can Homie do that. Homie's like a threat to everybody. He really is. He was. Um, but anyways, so he preferred the firing squad, according to him, because of his Mormon heritage. This is Utah. He said again, quote unquote, I like the firing squad. It's so much easier. And there's no mistakes. It's not, that's, can't, it's, can't argue with that one, though. 1996, Ronnie Lee Gardner. Yeah, I really. When I, you have, what, seven guns pointed at your chest and all of but one are firing a real bullet, you're going to, someone's going to kill you. One of the seven or whatever people are going to shoot your brain out. Do you think well, those seven dudes standing around are like, do you think it was me or it was, it was you or? I want to, you know, I'm curious because the person who doesn't have a bullet in there or like has a real bullet in their gun, it's a rubber bullet. Would that have a different kickback than a normal bullet, or does it feel, like, exactly the same? Like, would it feel different shooting a fake bullet than a real bullet? I've never fired a rubber bullet, but I can tell you it's the gun, not the bullet. So it shouldn't feel any different. Like, they wouldn't. You would no. not be able to distinct whether or not your gun had the real bu- the real bullets. Like, it would all feel the same. Yes. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I was just curious. Because I was thinking about that a lot, like, 
do they do they know would they know and i'm sure they do like kind of think to themselves like yo yo did i kill that guy it's good that they do it that way though for conscious purposes right i kind of agree um so state judge robin reese Did I read that right? Oh, no. Yeah. I'm sorry. State court judge Robin Reese signed an execution warrant on April 23rd, ordering the state to carry out the death sentence. At Gardner's commutation hearing, which, for those of you unfamiliar, back to the same term, uh, a commutation hearing is like if they're trying to commute sentencing, that means they're trying to get it extended. Uh, yeah. Right? They're trying to get the sentence yes. extended and not the death. Exactly. Yes, they're trying to either have another trial or have it thrown out. Correct. Extend his life, basically. Um, but on that here in that hearing, June tenth, two thousand ten, lawyers and medical experts in his defense argued whether meningitis contracted at the age of four might have damaged his brain. Also, he had huffed gas and glue with his siblings and played with mercury stolen from gas meters by his stepfather to sell. So, I'm confused. They're literally pulling at straws to try to explain away why he's such a yeah, wild mean, banshee. Did he smoke pot with Jimmy Hop- or Johnny Hopkins <laughs> and Sloan Kettering, too? And did he you know, <laughs> right. drink too many beers and get dropped on his head? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, I, I could claim a hundred reasons I'm an idiot, but... None of them have anything to do with the Mercury. I've never even been to Mercury. Um, (laughs) Three of the jurors that sentenced Ronnie Lee Gardner to death actually signed an affidavit, though, that they would have recommended that he would be sentenced to life without parole, an option that did not become available in Utah until 1992. Very interesting tidbit there, Lisa, because I'm actually now thinking that he might not have been sentenced to die based on the jury that he had considering what they said because honestly they wouldn't have wanted to kill him if they had the option to put him in jail for life very interesting we'll have to debate this we will we get to so gardner claimed that he was a changed man who was counseling inmates and was interested in starting an organic farm project <laughs> for youths 160 acres in box elder county utah i'm like bro what <laughs> He's really just doing anything and everything. He's just reaching for anything right. at this point. He's like, I'm about to be Oprah. No, he really did. He actually, Gardner's <laughs> attorney presented, I, I can't, I can't believe that this is the next thing in our notes because I really didn't even mean for this to happen. I just said that on a whim. I just said that on a fucking whim. Gardner's attorney presented a letter his client wrote to Oprah Winfrey requesting funds for the project. So he wasn't going to be Oprah. He wanted to get Oprah's money to, to be fund like his farm Oprah. Yes. His farm project. For his farm. For use. <laughs> <laughs> like, what were they going to do on the farm? Who's going to give this sexual deviant yeah. guy? Who is beating people to death and yeah. shooting people. And a farm. And be like, yeah, here's, here's my Here's a bunch kid. of kids. And yeah. Farms. Take, take the kids up there and spend the weekend with them, Michael Jackson. Um, Garner argued that it was not justifiable to execute him after so much time had passed since he committed the crime. This is true, though, because, I mean, that that point I don't necessarily agree with, but it has been a lot of time. He's been sit- He was sitting on death row for quite some time. 
Yeah, but I don't actually think that you can ever say that. Like, oh, well, he's been there for a while. Maybe he's better now. Like, <laughs> right. oh, we, he's been there too long. We should just kill him already. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, that's, you know, like I said, I'm very pro death penalty. We've had this discussion before. Yeah. Uh, a dude like this, I'm like, take him out back. See you later. Uh, or not. But here's another quote from Ronnie, and I love that we have a lot of quotes available from him because yeah. a lot of these, you know, a lot of these people. He had a lot discuss, of time to talk. Yeah, that's true. He spent a lot of time on death row. He wasn't doing shit else. <laughs> Trying to create his farm with. <laughs> yeah, he was thinking about his farm. He was coming up with ideas for the farm. He's like, oh, I have a swing set over there, and a pond over there by the. This by would the be the cornfield. This would be the cornfield where all the, the children can play. Like Ronnie. We're going out to yard time for like 20 minutes, bro. And then <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another good quote from Ronnie. I can do a lot of good. First of all, I'm a good example. There's no better example in this state of what not to do. Ronnie Lee Gardner in 2010. Assistant State Attorney General Tom Brunker argued against clemency, stating... Mr. Gardner was sentenced to death and earned that death penalty because of his unflagging history of violent crime. I couldn't have said it better, Mr. Brunker. The family of the late George Nick Kirk recounted how his being shot by Gardner affected their lives and ultimately shortened Kirk's life. Kirk's daughter, Barb Webb, said, He's done a lot of horrific things in his past, and I think, given the chance, he would do them all again. So... Jason Otterstrom, whose father Melvin was murdered by Gardner, struggled to describe the impact upon his family. After listening to the testimony of the families of the victims, Utah's State Board of Pardons and Parole declined Gardner's request for commutation, stating that the jury's verdict and sentence were not inappropriate. The board cited his violent record during incarceration and questioned his effort to perform as being, quote-unquote, too little too late. I like that. Well put. Gardner revealed at the hearing that it was Darcy Perry McCoy who provided him with the gun with which he murdered Michael Burdell. Deputy Salt Lake County Attorney Bob Stott said that McCoy would not be prosecuted because Gardner, the only witness, was about to be executed. And which it was, is kind of interesting. Oh, it was hearsay. There's no yeah. way for him to say one way or the other. It can't prove a, a negative. Um, so... Obviously, you know, he was in a bad situation, but again, there's nothing you can do. Uh, here's a quote from the daughter of one of his victims, George Nick Kirk, Tammy Stewart. She said, I feel really sorry for him. I do feel sorry, but he made that choice. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. I agree. Gardner said over the past decade, he had become cognizant of the pain he had caused his victims and their families. He told the parole board that he had developed a new awareness of why he had been so violent and impulsive, saying, I can't even apologize to the victims, and it makes me sad. A crying gardener spoke. People at the courthouse didn't even get hurt, or that didn't even get hurt. I'm sure it traumatized them. The U.S. Supreme Court turned down final appeals on June 17th, although a court order indicated that dissenting justices Stephen Breyer and John Paul Stevens would have granted a stay of execution. So this made it all the way to the high court. Which is wild. That, like, every all point the justices he had, like, voted on it. One like, little bit. 
there was a there was some iotas of sympathy here for this man. Yeah. I mean, even like we said, the original jury, the grand jury, the Supreme Court right? all there were had people some who believed in him. Yeah, I mean, or or didn't believe in him, but didn't believe that he deserved to die necessarily yeah. for what yeah, he'd yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court, though, there are nine justices, and two of them were dissenting, saying that, you know, they wouldn't have executed him. Uh, Utah Governor Gary Herbert also declined to intervene because Gardner had a, fail, a full and fair opportunity in court, quote, unquote. Uh, and the governor, by the way, after the court has ruled, after everything, is the last person that can rule clemency, yeah. grant clemency, exactly. Gardner lived in a 6 by 12 foot cell in Unit 1, a maximum security facility in the prison. He slept on a thin mattress atop a hard bunk. His cell's only other amenities were a stainless steel toilet, a sink, a mirror, and a small window that overlooked part of the prison yard. Sorry, but, like, I don't... Like, I don't care. Like, I'm sorry, when you're in prison, you don't deserve, like, a king-size bed and... Oh, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think there has to be Prison some... is prison is prison. Like, I don't care. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's a place for uncomfortable Unless you're people. in... Properly put in there. Like, unless you're innocent and you're put in jail, I don't give a fuck if you're living on a hardwood floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, not a hardwood floor. <laughs> on a hard bunk, though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't think there should be any extra comforts afforded to somebody who's on death row. No. Hell no. No. Um, but Wednesday night, that Wednesday night, for the first time in about 25 years, Gardner was permitted to reach through the bars of his cell and touch his family. Which is kind of sad. It is sad. In the midst of all those who loved Gardner, there were some who never knew him at all but wanted to offer support, even if he had killed someone they loved. Donna Taylor, Burdell's niece, and her husband, Lynn, sought out Gardner's family early on to let them know that there are people who care about them. We put it behind us 25 years ago when it happened, she said. We didn't like that they kept saying he'd be, he's being killed because he killed Mike. This is the last thing Mike would have wanted. I just hate that his family has to go through this now. It's a strong woman that said that. Absolutely. That's a strong woman that said that. Unbelievable. I mean, to forgive somebody shortly after they're killing her son. Um, She said many family members have felt angry, like they were shut out, when they constantly tried to point out that Burdell wouldn't have wanted to see Gardner die on his behalf. But she was certain that the two men will meet, and there will be no qualms, or I'm sorry, no qualms between them. I think Mike will be right there to welcome him home, she said. You just forgive. You just do. And if you don't forgive, it just hurts you. Michael is at peace. He's fine. Wow. Gardner's family said they would not witness the execution. He don't want that to be our last image, Randy Gardner said. He don't want us to have nightmares and bad dreams. Whew. Wow, that's heavy. Right? Like, it makes me kind of want to cry. But... It's just because I'm an emotional wreck right now, but also it's really deep. It's really, like you said, it takes a really strong human being to say such things. Yeah. About the man who senselessly murdered your family members. Remember. Couldn't imagine that perspective. Um, So let's talk about his actual death, Lise. Let's do it. 
So opponents of capital punishment did gather at the Utah State Capitol to hold a rally during the final appeals. And I do feel like this happens a lot, especially in um, places where the death penalty is still big. I mean, there's there's just kind of like abortion clinics, like there's always going to be people protesting. Um, so I do believe this is pretty common. The protest was attended by Gardner's family and was organized by Utahans. <laughs> is that how you would say that? Utahans. U- Utahans. Utahns for alternatives to the death penalty and also included the support of Brian King, Brian King of the Utah House of Representatives, who pledged what? Nothing. Oh, who pledged to urge the legislator to reconsider the use of capital punishment. The family of murder victim Michael Burdell, who we talked about, had also appealed on Gardner's behalf, stating that Burdell was a pacifist who would have opposed the death penalty. News media arrived from around the world and raised issue of blood atonement because of Gardner's citation of his Mormon roots in selecting the firing squad. Some followers of Mormonism were taught that murder is so heinous that the blood of the offender must be spilled to pay for their sins. The Utah Department of Corrections provided Gardner's attorney, Andrew Parnas, with the documentation about executions by the firing squad and lethal injection. So they did give... Gardner's attorney information on both and the records included the Utah execution team's training and expertise so I guess that was another effort to say like hey you can choose which one you want this is how they both go down this is information on both right which is very interesting very in the hours leading up to his execution prison officials described Gardner's mood as quote reflective and calm Gardner slept read mail and David Baldacati's Divine Justice, a novel about formal C- a ba- former Baldaki. Fuck life. <laughs> Red, da- Red Mail and David Baldaki's Divine Justice, which is a novel about former CIA assassin. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. On June fifteenth, two thousand and ten, Gardner Gardner ate a last meal of steak, lobster tail, apple pie, vanilla ice cream, and Seven Up before beginning a forty-eight fast. While watching the Lord of the Rings film trilogy and reading Divine Justice. What? Wow. A way to spend that. If you want to spend the last hours you have on this earth with the long, to make them feel like the longest hours of your life, you watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. That is how you do that. That's how you go about doing that. According to his lawyers, the fast was motivated by, quote, spiritual reasons. Ronnie was visited by an LDS (sighs) bishop and his family before the execution. Gardner walked voluntarily to the place of execution, and when asked when he had any last words, he responded, I do not. No. He was placed in restraints on a black metal chair with a hood covering his head. Sandbags were arranged around him to absorb absorb ricochets. The firing squad was made up of five anonymous volunteers who were certified police officers. How in the hell do you sign up for that? The officers stood about 25 feet or 7.6 meters from Gardner, aiming at a white target positioned over his heart. One of their .30 caliber Winchester rifles was selected at random and loaded with a non-lethal wax bullet so that they would not know with certainty who who fired the fatal shots, as we spoke about a little bit earlier. According to the Utah Department of Corrections, the squad used a countdown cadence beginning with five and simultaneously firing right before two. His dark, blue jump, his dark blue jumpsuit made it difficult to see the blood from his wounds. 
A medical examiner removed Gardner's hood to reveal his lifeless face, and after verifying Gardner's lack of pulse at the neck and palpitary, pulp, palpillary? Palpillary light reflex, the medical examiner pronounced him dead at 12.17 a.m. A commemorative coin was commissioned for the prison staff who participated in the execution. Gardner's friends and family gathered outside the prison at a candlelight vigil while playing Freebird by Leonard Skinner. They did not witness his execution per his request, as, they, as we touched on earlier, and some wore shirts with his prisoner number, which was 14873. His body was cremated and released to his daughter to be taken back to Idaho with family members. Gardner was executed on June 18, 2010, at 12.15 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Mm. Let's talk about it. Eye for an eye. Ada, ah! Uh. <laughs> well, one of these days I'm going to have to play that song off Honcho Jack. That's Travis Scott in Quavo. It's called... We should ask them if we could use... If we could ask Ada, the rights uh. to their song. I know. That would actually be a dope intro song. Yeah, we'd have to pay our souls away to fucking... Yeah, Quavo and Travis Scott. I don't even want to know what you're charging for rights anymore, fellas. Um, but anyways, um, what do you think, Lisa? Eye to eye. Let's let's just talk about that first before we talk about anything else. Do you think justice was met here? Do you think Ronnie deserved to die? Um. All right. So. Yes. And I am not someone that's like. Oh my gosh, yes, death penalty. And I'm not someone who's, oh my gosh, no, the death penalty. Right. I take it very situationally. Of course, everybody does, because, like, that's what it's about. But, you know, like, we talked about people who are opposed to death penalty, oppose it every single time. People are on the fence can go back and forth, because sometimes it's deserved, sometimes it's not. Right. Or, you know, arguably deserved. And, like, every case we talk about, it's case by case basis. Yes, absolutely. And so, for this particular man, I do empathize that his um, upbringing was, I'd say, if not 100%, very close to it to blame for how he ended up. Oh, I think he was it's completely, set up to fail. Yeah, I think it's completely relevant to but what happened to him. But I think that he was a danger both in prison and outside of prison. Yep. He was a danger to guards. He was a danger to other inmates. Yep. He was a danger to himself. Yep. He was a danger to everybody. He was a danger outside of jail, inside of jail, constantly. On his way to the courthouse. On his, you know, uh, that's exactly how this happened. And so it's like, it's one of those things where it's horrible that it had, it seemed, you know, it had to end this way. But I think all in all, it was the right decision just because I don't, I mean, as much as he say he was repenting and whatever, he had chances to do that years and years and years and years before, and he didn't. You know, up until, you know, right around his execution, he was, you know, getting in trouble for things, starting riots, you know, all those kind of things. And I think only in the last couple of years of his life is when he calmed down. And I think, unfortunately, well, I think right. it gives you some perspective to be sitting there staring death in the face. But he was staring death in the face the whole time. Yeah. But, um... And I think that, unfortunately, they were right in saying it's too little too late. If you wanted to show, like, if he had been a model prisoner, I think maybe they would have reconsidered or granted him, you know, his, you know, his stay. I don't think he earned that, though. I don't think anyone could trust that. Anyone could trust that, hey, if we do give you extra years, who's to say you're not going to turn around and attack another guard or attack another inmate or, you know, do something to hurt yourself or others? 
And unfortunately, that's that's what happened. So I feel like in this case, I do agree the punishment did fit the crime. What do you think? Yeah. I'm going to keep it simple. He killed three people. Tried to kill two more at least. I just don't think a person like this, despite their awful upbringing, I just don't think once somebody's reached that point, you can't bring them back necessarily. Mm-mm. And to have them sitting in jail, just to suffer in jail, like what's the freaking point of that? Well, some would argue it's to suffer. Yeah, but honestly, I mean, come on. This guy is more of a threat in jail than he is outside, it seems like. I mean, he's causing riots. He's causing fights. He's killing people, stabbing people in jail. Yeah. Like... I mean, I agree, but I think that's what people are saying. No, you're right. About. No, you, I, I know you're just making Some a point. Some people believe that I'm life in jail is worse than... Like, worse for people who dying. ask for the death penalty, I kind of want to keep them in jail. Because it's like, I'm not giving you what you want. Yeah, in exactly. for a reason, bro. Yeah, but I think they almost use that psychologically, thinking like, oh, well, maybe yeah. I'll get myself off of death row by saying I'd rather not <laughs> be on death row. Or I'd, I'd rather, rather be on it. I'd rather be on death row, exactly, yeah. right? Like, declaring insanity and, like, you know, why do you want to die? Um, but anyways, um, yeah, I don't believe that there was anything here that I would say, no, I don't think he should have died because of this, because I think everything in this case points to the fact that not only did he do it, but he didn't really show a lot of remorse for anything he's done. So, at least until the late stages of his life. Um, but yeah, going back to a little bit about what we were talking about before, just saying with like you know, manslaughter and a little bit of the difference between manslaughter and murder. Do you think that in a case like this where, you know, somebody who's, and I'm just saying, we know what Ronnie Lee Gardner did. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's, obviously this wasn't his first crime. But say, for example, somebody is running or is just, you know, incidentally doing something unrelated commits a crime and accidentally kills someone. You know. If it's truly an accident, I don't think they should get the death penalty. Because a lot of times those people are charged with murder because it's committed Mm -hmm. at the same time as a a crime. Yeah. Well, what my thing is, is, and what you said, is that when Rodney, when Rodney, when Ronnie shot the attorneys, um, the way he got the weapon was a very planned way. Now, whether that was to kill someone or not, when you pick up the gun, in my belief, you know that way. I think, and people are probably going to be pissed and fight me on this, but I think when you own, like, a handgun and not, like, a hunting rifle, um, you're taking the responsibility knowing that you may one day need to use that. You you don't just have a gun to never touch. I mean, you hope that's the case. Right. You go into. I don't think anybody who buys a gun is necessarily thinking I'm going to use this. But like that's what I'm saying. Not everybody. When you buy a gun, or when you use, when you have a gun in your possession, you have it in your possession, knowing that maybe, unfortunately, one day you have to. I might have to use use this. And you're willing and ready to do that if need be. Of course, not everyone's you know shooting and willing. So I think the fact that Rodney brought a gun to the courthouse knowing he was trying to escape and that was the plan. It was never to murder someone, I don't think. But the fact that you brought a gun, which is a lethal weapon, to get out, knowing that you might have to use that weapon and that could result in someone's death. Maybe he didn't think that far ahead, but I think even that planning, that's taking a chance. It's it's reckless. It's right. and, and you killed someone. I don't I don't believe that he planned on killing anyone that day. I don't. 
I don't either. I don't think necessarily it was intended for him to go and shoot a bunch of people. Mm-mm. If you had that, you wouldn't have asked for a revolver. Yeah. You know what I mean? You only get six shots. Yeah. So that ain't a, a weapon of you mass destruction. One shot. Don't miss your chance to blow this opportunity. It only comes, it comes once in a, a lifetime. lifetime. Give it though. up. Um, shout out Eminem. Shout out Eminem. But uh, that's the part that gets me because it's like, was, is that how they got it? Like, why didn't he get manslaughter then? I think because... Do you think it's because people thought that he intended to kill someone? That I day? think because he was also intending to commit a crime. Oh, it's like not even about murder. It's just I like don't. I, I think any felony you commit while also committing a murder is immediately first degree murder. That's just what it is. It's felony murder. Well, shit. Exactly. So that's what I mean. If you're robbing a bank... But this wasn't a robbery, so is that a, a first... A felony to escape escaping from custody yeah yes well damn yes yes my man i do i do i mean once you're already in custody there's a reason you're in custody right if you're trying to flee so like if you are committing a robbery got caught up in some nonsense and and someone's shooting at you so you shoot them you do believe it's fair to put them in jail for the rest of their life well, if you hadn't been in the robbery, you wouldn't have been here in the first place, so... Yeah, but that's argued, argued like, every crime ever could be argued like that if you weren't at the... Yeah, the but I'm shop. saying, I think based on that, yes, if you kill somebody, yeah, you should be in jail for life because you were trying to commit that crime to commit the other crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? All the crimes are trying to be committed. Yeah, you're almost, like, trying to get so out of one. that wouldn't change what you thought? No. Not necessarily. I don't think it would. I don't know. I think I, if. I don't know. Would you have given him the death penalty instantly? Or would. Because, like. So, the way I base the death penalty is I do base it off of also the crimes he committed while he was in jail. Like, he just didn't stop. He was just clearly violent. Would you have given him the death penalty just based on. I guess he committed a murder and then <laughs> committed three more murders. So, never mind. Ignore that last question. So, all in all, I think we agree. The punishment does fit the crime. I would say so. In this case, yes. I believe he absolutely does. Yeah. Sad for everyone all around. Um, yeah, because Ronnie you know, didn't really have a chance, like you said, you know. That's what's so sad. It's like people are having kids that like, and just fucking them up from day one. It's like, makes me so sad when I think about not only kids that grow up like this, but kids that don't even make it, you know, to their fourth birthday because of the monsters that, you know. You know who you are. Stop having kids. Crazy. It's crazy. But thank you guys for joining us tonight on this episode of I for an Eye. We are so proud to have you as listeners. I don't know why I said proud. That's a weird adjective to use. But we are very proud to have you with us tonight to discuss the Ronnie Lee Gardner's case. Joy, we missed out on your your uh, insight here in this conversation. We'd love to have you back for an update. Yes. Um, I'm sorry our scheduling conflicts weren't working out. But we are excited. Any more case recommendations? We love to hear them. We have Bring them out. more coming up, which we is want really more. nice. So keep a listen. Keep a lookout. We have some exciting Patreon content coming out Woo! very soon. Um, so keep a lookout to that if you want to support and join and see what that's all about. Hit us up, iforeye.com. No, not iforeye.com. Um, Patreon.com slash iforeyepod. 
rate, review, subscribe. We love those five-star ratings. We love hearing from you guys. We really love it. So thank you for doing that in advance. We love you. Here's a shout-out. Ada ah, playing the song. We see Ada ah. Matt and Lisa. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.